Welcome to the Tell Us Something podcast. I'm Mark Moss. Since 2011, Tell Us Something has been drawing large crowds to our live events because people are hungry for stories. Stories are what make us human. The storytellers at Tell Us Something are generally not performers, and most of them do not write out their stories or memorize them. Storytellers have 10 minutes to tell their story from memory based on a theme. Names of storytellers are not announced before the event because Tell Us Something encourages people to come listen to their community tell stories. The Missoula community does have some well-known people living in it, and sometimes those folks do find their way to the Tell Us Something stage. We want potential listeners to decide they are coming to Tell Us Something live events, not based on the advertised storytellers, but because they want to come and listen to all of the stories to their community. Tell Us Something events are held four times a year here in Missoula. We'll be in Helena, Montana twice this year, and I'm working on an event in Butte, America, too. All of this is to say that Tell Us Something is a lot of work. Back in December, I asked at the live event, if given the opportunity to make a tax-deductible donation to Tell Us Something, would you do so? A good amount of people clapped, cheered, and whistled. Now is your chance to make that donation. Missoula Gives is happening right now. Podcast listeners have an opportunity to give early. Go to tellussomething.org and click the Donate button to make your tax-deductible donation. Please pause the podcast right now and do it. Your donation helps keep Tell Us Something going. So far this year, I've worked 160 hours just on producing the podcast, and I'm not getting paid for that work. I need your help to be able to keep doing this work. Please pause the show right now and go to tellussomething.org to make your donation. Thanks so much. All right, thanks again for making your donation. This week, I'm trying something a little different with the podcast. Some feedback I've gotten from storytellers is that waiting for their story to be published is frustrating and they want their stories to be available closer to the event where they shared their stories. So for this week's podcast, the format is a little different than regular listeners are used to. This hour features the audience participation portion of the live event, and it makes sense to keep the remainder of the right place, right time stories all together. So we'll hear a couple of selections from the early days of Tell Us Something, along with the audience participation piece in this week's podcast. Our first set of stories features mead sample sippers at a farmer's market, love stories in a bookstore, at the Top Hat and Luke's Bar, true love under the Higgins Street Bridge, and meeting President Obama. These stories and more in this week's audience participation podcast brought to us by Lauren Champa and Sarah Raz, reading from the anonymously submitted audience participation forums just after intermission at the live event. This act was recorded in front of a live audience on March 20th, 2018 at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. The theme was right place, right time. All right. One time I was biking home from soccer practice, and a bird pooped on my arm. A crow saw this and came at me, either telling me I was now a curse or was laughing at me. While wandering through a farmer's market in Durham, North Carolina, at the age of 26, I stopped to try some mead at a booth. I finished my sample and casually took stock of some fellow sample sippers. Immediately, I recognized the woman next to me. She was the mother of my little sister's friend, who I had last seen 13 years before in Belgium. When I called her by her name, she practically had a heart attack. Back in the day, I played the early set before the real band played tunes at the Clark Fork Market. One sunny, smoky September morning as I sang under the Higgins Street Bridge, two guys with instruments walked up behind me to set up their gear. I immediately recognized one as the cute boy I'd met at Halloween more than a year before when I, of course, had been dressed as a garden gnome. (laughs) Needless to say, he did not remember me. We talked for a few minutes, then I stayed to listen to their music. Feeling full of courage, I wrote my number on a piece of paper, rolled it in a dollar bill, and dropped it in his guitar case. He called me a week later to sing in his band. Four years later, we got married. Now we're going on six years, all because I was in the right place at the right time. I never knew I'd meet my husband under the Higgins Street Bridge. 
the day I re-met my husband. I was newly separated from my first husband and wandered into a bookstore, and there was my first love, my love at first sight. The rest is history. During the 2008 presidential primary, Obama came to the U of M. I wanted to meet him so badly, but there were thousands of people. After his speech, I saw his bodyguards heading towards the stadium where the overflow of people who wouldn't fit in the arena were waiting, watching the event. I bolted for the stadium. A line of guards yelled, no more people. I dodged past just in time to see Obama greeting people who were lined up in the seats. Reacting down to the field to shake his hand, I reached the end of the line just as he got there. I was so nervous, all I could think to blurt out was, I love you, Obama. <laughs> he shook my hand coolly and said, I love you too. <laughs> I proceeded to faint. 1986, chilly night, sweaty night at the old Top Hat, hanging out with a friend much better looking than me. Very cute young woman comes to our table and asks him to dance. He turns her down. I awkwardly offer my services. <laughs> she reluctantly says, okay. I did okay on the dance floor, it seems. A year later, we were married. 30 years later, we still are. Thanks, Matt, for turning her down that night. I went to Santa Fe, New Mexico to take a class, stayed and worked as a river guide on the Rio Grande, and the company I worked for sent me on a three-day river trip to the Rio Cama with this cute guy. We became roommates both about a week later when I moved out of my tent in the desert into his house. We fell in love and are still together. I just broke up with my girlfriend, so I went to Luke's bar for a drink. I sat down, and the lady beside me leaned over and kissed me and said, you look so sad. We got married three years later and raised two beautiful children. <laughs> my true American moment. Swam into a lake catchy, climbed up a snag in the middle of the lake, sat looking at snow-capped mountains when a fighter jet flew by me. Time stood still. I swear we made eye contact. As he or she flew off, I jumped into the lake and as I resurfaced, I looked up and a bald eagle flew over my head. Thanks guys, have a good night. Thanks Lauren and Sarah. Our next story was recorded in front of a live audience on February 19th, 2013 at Monk's Bar in Missoula, Montana. The theme was 10. Katie Robin Garten bickers with her sister about who must empty the poop or the pee bag as they hike up Denali, 14,000 feet above from where they began. They make a decision about turning back or moving on after an unexpected storm. Hi. <laughs> this is pretty cool. This is a lot of people. So you might not know this, but when you go to climb Denali, which is North America's tallest peak... There's this daily ritual that absolutely sucks. When you arrive at base camp, they give you this stack of plastic bags, and they're biodegradable. And every day, you got to do your business, and then you have to throw that bag in a crevasse. And my sister and I, we decided to climb Denali when I was 20 and she was 21. And we would fight about who had to throw the poop bag in the crevasse, because we hated it, doing it. But we would fight basically about everything. Um, we're sisters, so that's what you do, you bicker. We would fight about who had to empty the pee bottle in the middle of the night, and who had to get out of the tent first in the morning and flake the icy rope that connected us as we moved up this mountain. But there we were in Denali, and something you have to understand, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little visualization of the mountain so you know how you move up it. But you start at 7,200 feet at base camp, and you make your way up to Camp 14,000 is what people call it. It's really creative. It's at 14,200 feet. And from there, it's the staging ground for everything going up and everything coming down. And it's pretty much a slog to make it to that point because this mountain is huge. You, you gain 13,000 feet in 18 miles. In the first half, you're carrying 
a huge sled and a, and a big backpack, and it's just a lot of work. And there was one day in particular, it was June 9th, and I happened to only remember that date because we kept a journal. <laughs> and on this day, it was Rachel's turn to put the poop bag in the crevasse, and I was so thankful <laughs> it wasn't me. And I'm sitting there, and I'm zoning out, eating my lunch, and Rachel had unclipped from our, our harness rope system, I don't know why, and she is going, taking care of stuff, and I hear this loud noise, and I turn around, and my 110-pound little, she's not little, she's older than me, but she's tiny, is leaping up into the air with all of her might because she had broken a snow bridge and had partially fallen into a crevasse, unroped. It's very scary. And as she makes her way back towards me, instead of hugging her and like being happy she was alive, I yelled at her. <laughs> I got really angry, and I just told her how stupid she was, and I didn't understand why she unroped. And that's how things had been going for us. Because two years before that, we had been in a really bad car accident. And Rachel had been driving on, with cruise control and fell asleep at the wheel, and we were going 75 miles per hour. And it was really bad. There was life flight and jaws of life to cut us out of the car. And she and I, being 14 months apart, had grown up like twins. We were inseparable. We shared best friends. I feel sorry for them. <laughs> and we went to college together. And this car accident was completely, our, our relationship was disintegrating. And for any of you who have siblings who are close, I'm not talking about we were in a fight. I mean, it was on the edge of not existing. There was, she felt so much guilt for almost killing the person who meant the most to her. And I was angry. I was young, and I blamed her. And for us, going on this mountaineering trip was kind of like our way to heal. But our friends thought we were like totally crazy <laughs> because we hadn't resolved these issues. And we would express our like fear for losing each other with like yelling at each other, which is a very sibling thing to do when you're young. But there we were on the mountain, and on June 9th, we were heading up to Camp 14,000. And we get there, and we decide that we don't want to linger at Camp 14,000. It's kind of a big shit show, and we just wanted to get out of there. And from Camp 14,000, let me explain what happens. It's like, imagine this big basin, and it's like a ton of people. I mean, a lot of people climb this mountain. And you gain 2,000 feet up to Ridge 16,000. Once again, another really creative name. And <laughs> you take this ridge, and you make it to high camp, at, which is about 17.2. And then from high camp, you do your summit bid. And the top of Denali sits at 20,300 feet. So we headed out the next day. We loaded up our packs. We weren't going to do what everyone else was doing, which was you go up to the ridge and you cache a bunch of food so that if you're stuck at high camp in a storm, you don't have to go all the way back down to get, like, resupplied. And I should add that there's two places on this mountain where people tend to die the most, and it's on Summit Ridge and ridge, this 16,000 ridge, because the wind comes up so quickly and so fiercely, it just, like, blows people right off the mountain. And we decided to add a little adventure to this trip. We would camp there, because that just seemed like a great idea. And so we head out the next day, and it was June 10th. We make it up to the bottom of the fixed lines. This is at, like, 15,000 feet. The Park Service has set these lines because there's so many people climbing this mountain that they don't want one person to fall and, like, domino effect and knock everyone off. So it's really steep and it's icy, so they put these lines in that you, you hook into and you make your way up. And it's tough. Like, it's really steep. We'd been going for many days. I mean, this trip takes, like, a, a month, so we're a couple weeks in, and I just remember <laughs> being on the fixed lines, and you, you have to step where other people have stepped. It doesn't really work, and most people are a little bit taller than us, and it's not really steps for little people, and I'm the tall one at five, three and a half, and Rachel's a bit shorter than me. So we were working really hard. And Rachel had shed all of her layers because she hates hiking really hot. And I am, like, perpetually cold, so I was, like, bundled up and down. And we make it to the top of the fixed lines. And like you would expect, 
the wind picked up like you wouldn't believe. A storm was rolling in big time, and it got serious really fast. And I was protected in all my layers, but Rachel was in like her very base layers of thermals and her like big alpine climbing boots. And I look over at her, and I could just tell in that moment, I could see her eyes start to glaze over like she was going to cry, and she just needed me. And I stopped what I was doing, and I went over to her, and her pants were like vertical in the air, and it took two of us to like get them down and put them on, and we get her all layered up, and we pull out the tent. And you have to understand, like we're on this like tight ridge, and the wind is so fierce that that it, the tent is like a sail. And if you lose your tent in that sort of situation, you are screwed. So we're like, we get into this mode. We're like not talking to each other, but communicating in all those like sisterhood superpowers that we had had since we were young. And we're doing it and we're nailing it and we're getting it done. We get the tent set up. We get into our big giant sleeping bags and we get cozy and we're like making hot chocolate. And we just felt euphoric. And I swear it was not just because of the lack of oxygen. We felt like we were finally starting to work together. And we got all warm and fuzzy. We were like singing songs at the top of our lungs and thank God nobody could hear us. And we, were, we would read out loud to each other at night and we were reading Tom Robbins and, and we fell asleep. But before we did, I had this thought that went through my mind. It's so vivid. I remember thinking, holy shit, we're going to climb this mountain. <laughs> like up until that point, I think I was convinced that, that it was like we had fake IDs and someone was going to kick us out of the bar. <laughs> like we didn't really belong there and we didn't know what we were doing. But we did and we just needed to work together. And that's what was happening. And I remember thinking, okay, we have 10 to go. We have 10,000 feet to go. We got to make it up. But when you're on a big mountain like this and you've got all the elements, you got to make it up and you got to make it down. And to get to up to the summit and back down to the safe spot at the bottom of the fixed lines was 10,000 feet. So the next morning, we woke up, and this storm had dropped about a foot and a half of snow on this ridge line. And no one down low was moving because they were still socked in in a storm. And usually on Denali, it's a mountain that gets so highly traveled, it's usually a highway. And that whole feeling of safety in numbers applies and you're never alone and it should be beautiful, but it's not because people are like all around you. We were completely alone on the ridge with no path paved, new snow, and we were just moving so seamlessly with each other. It was like the symbiotic caterpillar-like movement up the mountain and we were just giddy and laughing and having an amazing time. And we broke through the clouds and it was sunny And we couldn't believe it because everyone down low was still in a storm. And we make it up to high camp. And it's a ghost town. There's two other teams there when usually there's hundreds of people. And we settle in and we decide the next day we felt felt good. We were going to go for the summit. And we wake up in the morning and (laughs) I have this image in my mind where, so when you're sisters and you're that close in age, and you're growing up, and your parents give you different gifts at the holidays, you fight about who got the better gift. It's like inevitable. And it was so severe that my parents stopped giving us different gifts. We'd get the exact same thing in the exact same color. And so we couldn't like kick that habit, so we just seemed to buy like the same thing. And so there we were getting ready in the morning. We had these bright purple down jackets, and they were matching. And we had these purple, you wear these big overboot things over your boots to keep you warm and they were purple and matching and we were like these two little round blueberries just like making our way up the mountain and uh, (laughs) we made our way up the first big push which is Denali Pass and I remember thinking how cold it was it was the coldest I had ever been in my life and with every step I took I would kick my foot against the ice to like remind my body that it was there because it was so cold and to breathe was really difficult. When you're in, when the globe, the globe isn't perfectly round. So when you're in Alaska and you're at 20,000 feet, that's 
kind of equivalent to 24,000 feet in the Himalayas. So you're high. There's not a lot of oxygen. So it was tough for us. And we're moving along and we're just being so supportive. And are you, you know, you want a bite of my cookie? And just like really nice, no more yelling. And um, we make our way across this big thing called football field. And we make it to the bottom of Pig Hill, which is this bitch of a hill that you think you're so close but you're not. <laughs> you have to go up this slope that's really steep and long. And at the top of that is Summit Ridge. And at this point, I'm in the lead. And uh, I'm just mustering up all the energy I had, just moving at a solid pace, wanting Rachel to think that I was just like, because I'm in front, doing good. And all I could think about was, I have to pee so bad. I have to pee so bad. I had had to pee for hours, but I didn't want to stop because I was worried I wouldn't get going again. And I was also worried I would get really cold. Uh, so we make it to the top of Pig Hill, and there's this plateau, this short little stopping spot that's actually flat enough that you can move around. And from that point, you're so close to the summit. I mean, it's like 200 feet away, but it's a knife edge ridge. And the weather that day was not good. One team, there were three of us out there that day, one team had turned around because the wind and the weather was too bad, and the other team had summited long before us. So we're alone out there. And we knew that we were going to have to set protection as we moved along that ridge so we wouldn't get blown off. And when I have to pee really bad, I wiggle, like, really badly. (laughs) And I knew that I had this thought in my mind that as I moved along the ridge and I was hammering in a picket with my ice axe, I would be wiggling so hard that I couldn't get it in, and a gust of wind would just come and, like, blow me off the mountain. So I looked at Rachel, and I just basically was like, I gotta pee. So when you're a woman and you're on a glacier... Peeing isn't as easy as just kind of like whipping it out. You're wearing a harness, and we couldn't afford the really fancy, what they're called, Lady J's, which are basically these fancy pee funnels. We went to Walmart, and we found the 99-cent oil filters. (laughs) And hers was blue, and mine was orange. And uh, we had these big carabiners, and we'd hook them to our harness, and we would, like, they just dangle as we made our way up the mountain. And so I, I took out my pee funnel, and I was like, I'm going to do it. And, I, and you, you're, you have zipper, like, in your crotch, and you, I unzippered, and I knew the moment I did that I was screwed. It was so cold. If I had any warmth in me, it was gone. But I, you know, I, I'm like, I got to pee, and I, I fiddle with my carabiner, and I get the pee funnel down there, and... I'm thinking, God, this could not be any worse. Do you guys remember the Christmas story? You know the little boy with his tongue in the pole? (laughs) I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) It was bad. And I was done. And Rachel looked over at me. And she knew in that moment I needed her. And we didn't have to talk. It was just this unspoken understanding what needed to happen. I mean, when you're up and you're at that sort of place, like, you have to make really quick decisions. And we had a split second to decide between hypothermia (laughs) and being stuck up on the mountain or making the summit. And she made the decision for us. And she did it for me to protect me because she loved me. And we turned around. We didn't get the summit. And as we made our way back down that full 10,000 feet, back down to the safe spot, there was no regret, and there was no judgment, and there was no blame. I didn't blame her for the car accident, and she definitely didn't blame me for the loss of that summit. Because we were just so happy. I mean, like, we had each other again. And a couple days ago, I got a phone call, and it was Rachel, and she was in labor, three weeks before she thought she would be. And I was on the next plane out of town. I got back last night. And I got to spend that first 24 hours with my first niece. The second one was on the way, and she's another girl. And I spent that 24 hours talking how awesome it it is to be a sister.
Thanks, Katie. Katie Robin Garten was raised in the Rocky Mountains and now resides in Missoula, Montana. Learn more about Katie and the work she does at SproutFilms.net. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. I want to take a minute here and thank our title sponsors. The Bookstore at the University of Montana, a local bookstore serving the students, faculty, and staff of the University of Montana, as well as the Missoula community. MontanaBookstore.com CabinetParts.com The number one source for cabinet hardware since 1997. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to CabinetParts.com CabinetParts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with the best online shopping experience nationwide. With fast and easy ordering, free hinge matching service, and same-day shipping, CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. Gecko Designs. The creative crew at Gecko Designs makes awesome logos that are off the hook. They build beautiful, mobile-friendly websites for both large and small clients in Missoula and around the country. Visit the Gecko Design teams on North Higgins in Missoula or online at geckodesigns.com. Logjam Presents. Headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independent and privately owned live entertainment company. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettle House Amphitheater, the Wilma, and the Top Hat Lounge. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. Logjampresents.com You too can support Tell Us Something during Missoula Gives. Your tax-deductible donations help keep Tell Us Something going. This online giving event is your chance to support Tell Us Something in a direct way. Tell Us Something depends on your contributions every year to help us maintain our services and programming. Please, donate during Missoula Gives. We'll use the money to continue creating the weekly podcast and expand our live programming. This work takes time and costs money. Please, give what you can. Donate at tellussomething.org. Thank you. All right, let's get back to the storytelling. Our final story comes to us from Aaron Roos and is a little longer than the typical Tell Us Something story. There were some people who dropped out at the last minute that night, and I told Aaron that he could run long. This story was recorded in front of a live audience on February 19th, 2013 at Monk's Bar in Missoula, Montana. The theme was 10. In his story, Aaron is near death with sickness, but must travel all the way to Africa because of a job he held on a reality television program where he was responsible to quarantine the losers of the show. He calls his story 10 Hours in Africa. Thanks for listening. Okay. Good good evening, monks. Good evening. Uh... I remember Pearl Jam 10 came out. I was 10. It was the 10th of June. It was a tenuous day. No, that's not my story. But don't care. Okay. Uh, uh, so, long time ago, I moved to a crazy giant town on the edge of the uh, North American continent called Los Angeles. And uh, some of you have probably heard this, so bear with me. I got a job in uh, reality television, which I now call the uh, downfall of art and Western society, because it's a lot of fun. When I was there, I got onto a show. I don't think tra- I think trademark. I'm not allowed to say this. The show is on, but it's uh, lo- we'll call it the Bamazing Brace. And uh, <laughs> they, um, yeah, they said don't say it, so I didn't say it. Anyway, I got on there, and the job I had was a really interesting job. I did casting for these shows, and they paid me a bunch of money at the time, and I was broke actor. I had 38 bucks when I moved down there. So I took these jobs, and they were like, oh, hey, we'll get people, bring them in, put them on these shows, make them look horrible in front of America. They'll quit their jobs or get divorced. It's going to be awesome. I was like, that sounds so good. Where do I sign up, you know? So I started doing it. Pretty soon, they, they changed the, uh, the job, and they decided to send me on the road. Remember to breathe. Okay. And uh, so, I, so I went on the road, and one of the first assignments I had was uh, to actually pick up contestants from around the world as they got kicked off of this show. And so we had a safe house, and at the, this, this specific episode, I know it was a safe house. <laughs> I was keeping the whole world from knowing who got kicked off the Amazing Race, because that's like worth millions of dollars, apparently. And anyway, so the safe house was in uh, Portugal, so every two days, I would travel halfway across the globe, pick up a team, bring them back, drop them off, stay the night, get on a plane, do the same thing. And we'd do that for like 13 teams, and then we'd be done. 
and uh, the end of the show and yada yada. So this story takes place, uh, this, is, this story is called my, my 10 Hours in Africa. It's true, I was in, in Africa for 10 hours and uh, I flew from Portugal to Morocco, Morocco to another country, I forget, and then from there to Burkina Faso, which is uh, on the western bulge of Africa on the west side. And I went to a town called Ouagadougou, a million and a half people, uh, very third world, but very advanced, the, 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 uh, the center of communications for the African continent over there. But anyway, the story takes place as I'm flying into Ouagadougou. It's very early in the morning. As the plane lands, I realize that I'm no longer in Missoula. It's hot and it's red and the sun's just cresting way off on this flat, flat parcel of land. You can just see it creeping up and I realized that I'm starting to get sick and I had been putting it off for a long time and I knew it was coming and I'm getting the flu and I've been traveling for 30 hours and I land and everyone goes through customs, a very tiny airport, about a quarter the size of Missoula's airport. And as I'm going through customs, I realized that when I got to Morocco, they made me check my bag, which is just a backpack, but I had a beard, I had a one-way ticket. I looked like I could be from just about anywhere, so... (laughs) They, they put four S's on the bottom of your boarding pass, and they send you in a different line. So I'm in this different line. I'm waiting, and they have this very beautiful French accent in, in Ouagadougou. And the man said, where are you from? I said, uh, I'm, I'm from America. I said, what are you doing here? What's, uh, what, what are you doing? Why, why are you here? But we're not allowed to say what we're doing because they want to keep it a secret. And all my credentials were in my bag, my bag stuck in the customs thing. and won't let me have my bag until I tell them where I'm going. So I'm kind of stuck in this catch-22 with this guy, and... He finally just looks at me and he's like, uh, uh? I said, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm doing. It's a movie thing, you know? And so he allows me to go outside and see if my drivers are. I said, I think I have a driver out there. He'll have a card. I'll clear all this up. Just let me go outside and I can, you know, continue on. Everyone's cleared through customs at this point. It's just me and this young, young Wagadugu gentleman. They call themselves Wagons, Waga, the city of Waga and their Wagons. So we're sitting there, and he's, he doesn't believe a word I'm saying. So he, he lets me go outside. And as I go outside, you, it's an open airport. You can see the sun coming up, like I said. And as soon as I walk out, there's just this, about 40 or 50 young wagon men, probably about 15, 20 years of age. And they start to just kind of swarm me. They have phone cards and SIM chips for, for phones, so you can turn your cell phone into a world phone. And I'm trying to call with my very fancy amazing brace phone and uh, it's not working and I can't get a hold of anybody and I'm just I don't know what to do and the big rule is do not be late no matter what happens be there pick up the teams get them on the airplane get them back to the safe house no questions just make sure it happens to okay so I'm getting a little stressed out I know I have a big day ahead of me they all start singing in the club by 50 cent all these young walking walking <laughs> And it's, it's, you know, it's five in the morning, and I'm like, wow, and I'm like, in the club, yes, you know this song, in the club. And I was like, I, yeah, it's so good. It's the best song ever. 50 Cent, yes? I was like, yeah, man, he's so good. I go- and, um, and so I make the mistake, my phone's not working, this one uh, young man comes up and he says, we have these cards, if you buy one, you put it in your phone, it'll work, you can call your boss. And I said, oh, okay. Well, when you travel with this show, they give you all this money and credit cards, and you have to hide it everywhere. And I had an extra fake passport that was to be hidden and used at certain times. And so I make the mistake with the flu and the tired flight and long day, and I open my wallet, and I've got about 2,000 euros in my wallet, and they just all look at it. Whoa. I was like, shit, that was not a good idea to do that. I pull out like a euro, you know, and I... I'm like, hey, how many phone cards can I get for this? You know, and they're like, whoa. And so he gives me a couple phone cards. I put it in the thing. It doesn't work. I'm starting to freak out. I don't know what to do. This is it. I have no luggage. My, my, I have my passport on me, a bunch of money. I'm in uh, a, an African country. It's 5 in the morning, and I, I'm getting sick with the flu, and I have no idea where I am or what to do or how to come contact anybody. They give us this Bible, and it has... Thousands and thousands of phone numbers and names and emergency contacts, but that's in my bag, and the other guy's holding it. So, so finally, I'm sitting there, I'm kind of getting a little nervous, and the, the crowd starts to disperse, and the gentleman, the customs gentleman, walks out, and he just hands me this phone. He says, you have, you have 30 seconds. 
I was like, uh, uh, for what? I don't know what you... He says, my cousin works at the film office here in Ouagadougou. I figured you were with the film company. I called him. Yes, he knows who you are, and he has you to ride. And he, please talk. To you have 30 seconds. I was like, hello? Yes, uh, yeah, uh, yes. You know, and he tells me that I'm, my driver is there in the group. He's staring at me, and he's talking to him on another phone. And he knows that I'm there, and his, his name is Jean. And I said, okay. And, and he says, ask for him. He'll, he, knows you're, he knows you're there. Just ask for him. I said, oh, okay. Jean? And about 40 of these young guys just kind of look at each other. And like one guy just slowly like kind of raises his hand. And at that moment I'm thinking, not very convincing, you know. There's a good chance this is not Jean. But I have to go with this guy, I have no choice. So I say, okay, in the club, here we go, you know. And, and, and we start to go, and John says, please, come with me. And so I follow John, and we're walking through this small parking lot, this asphalt parking lot, and you can feel the heat as the sun's getting a little higher in the sky. And off in the distance is this just very large, million, a million and a half people, the city, but it's, it's, it's open sewers, and it's skyscrapers, and it's poverty, and it's opulence. It's very, very confusing, and my flu head is starting to get to me, and he starts to walk, so I start to follow. And just as we leave, all these young men follow behind us. And we're all just jumping, singing 50 Cent as we walk to the van. And we go from a, a concrete parking lot, or sorry, an asphalt parking lot through this little thing of trees to a concrete parking lot through this little thing of trees to a dirt parking lot, all empty. There's no cars anywhere. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is, this is, this is it. This is an, a possibility where I die. And, and, and I was really concerned because I, I, I didn't know what to do. So I said, I have my passport. As long as I have, they can have all my money. As long as I have my passport, I can get out of the country. At le- you know, at least I have that. And so we get to the third parking lot. And as they're all singing in the club, they all go silent and form a single file line behind me. I'm following Jean, and we're heading towards this little group of trees through this dirt trail. And I'm and I just keep getting these flashes of images in my head from, you know, movies where people wake up in a tub full of ice and no kidneys and stuff like that. And I'm getting worried about it. And so finally we turn this corner and there in the distance as the sun's peeking up behind us over these small huts and houses is shining a single beam of light on this beautiful van. And on the van it says WRP, World Race Productions. And I'm like, oh, my God. And so I think, well, finally I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. This is, this is going to be all right. We start walking to the van, and I notice that Jean goes to the right, and I go to the left to get in, and suddenly in my mind, I'm thinking, this is where they're going to get me. This is where they're going to hold me and take the money and, and beat me up or kill me. I don't know. So in my infinite wisdom, I run around the other side of the van as fast as I can and pull my passport out and keep it in my hand out of my back pocket, and then as I jump in the, the car door on the passenger side, about 40 hands reach in, and I close the door on all these hands, you know. I look over at John, and he looks at me, and I say, what do I do? He said, you should give them some money. I said, uh, okay, you know. I already bought the phone card, so I thought I was doing pretty good with these guys. We did the whole 50 cent thing. I brought up Snoop Dogg, too. I forgot that. I brought up Snoop Dogg, and they had no idea who he was. <laughs> and I didn't know 50 cent in the club at the time, so I was kind of just, in the ha, in the ha. But I knew Snoop Dogg, but Snoop Dogg's not big in Wagadougou. <laughs> so anyway, I closed the door that you should give them money. I said, oh, my God, this is crazy. I open up my wallet. Oh, sorry, I reach in my pocket, and I pull out about... 25 euros and some change and I hand it to them and they all get very quiet and they're looking at the money they're accounting it the older the older boys are, are divvying out the change to the younger boys and then the medium sized boys are taking some of the paper money and then the oldest boy is taking like the 20s and the 5s and he turns to me and says this is not enough I said oh, oh and I look at John he's like you should give them some more money I was like, I don't, I don't have much more money I'm going to give them, you know, this is... So I open my wallet, and this hand reaches in and takes all the euros out. It wasn't my cash, which was pretty good. It was the company's money, but very scary. The door slumps shut. They all start screaming and yelling and cheering me and smiling and waving, singing 50 Cent, running off of the distance. 
Jean likes up a huge joint, turns the van on, and Bob Marley's Three Little Birds just starts blasting through the speakers. And I'm like, okay, that was kind of crazy. Um, so we head into town. We're heading into Ouagadougou proper, and it's just this craziness. I'm like, what is going on? This, I've never seen anything like this. There's a, there's a man sweating. It's about 8.30, 9 o'clock now. He's just sweating profusely with a three-piece, beautiful teal blue suit on, standing for the bus with a briefcase, and his, he keeps adjusting his glasses. And right next to him is a man wearing a kind of a cloth uh, half diaper, and he's, he's, he's defecating in an open sewer right next to this gentleman. It was just the, the juxtaposition of these things, and I'm thinking to myself, where am I? This is so crazy. So I try to talk to John. He doesn't speak English. I don't speak French. He just knows where to take me. We go to this the Four Seasons in Ouagadougou, which is ludicrous. And it's the biggest building, it's the most beautiful building, and it's all guarded, we pull up. And as I'm running up the stairs, the entire race, which is about 140 people that work on the show, come running out the steps, and they're screaming, and they're brushing their teeth, and drinking coffee, and pulling up their pants, and I'm like, what's going on? Like, well, we worked out the route, but the teams found an extra plane ride, and they bought tickets, and they're five hours ahead of us. We have to get out to the town of Bingo immediately. I was like, oh my God. I've been traveling for 30 hours. I feel like I'm going to vomit. I, oh, I just got mugged. I, I thought I was going to die. I'm now a big fan of 50 Cent. You know, things are changing in my world. <laughs> and they take off. And this one guy's kind of calm and cool. He's like, Roos, listen, I know you're here to get the contestants. It's okay. Go upstairs, take a shower, come down. This guy's going to take you out to bingo. You can get the contestants. You can go home. I said, okay. So I walk in and I go to the front desk. And one of the first things this guy that started the show, this guy Bertram von Munster, he started Cops, that was his big deal, right? So he's this crazy Dutch guy, he's like 2,000 years old, very strict, and when we left he said, don't wear hats, always shave your face, and never wear shorts, it insults people, and we're representing America. I walked up to the front desk to check in, and I say I'm here to check in, and I turn to my left, and there's Bertram, and I'm wearing a hat, and I'm stubbly, <laughs> and I got shorts on. And I want to, you know, get sick. I want to puke because I have the flu. And he just looks at me and he just, and he turns around and leaves. I'm like, oh, man, this is, okay, so strike two. I go up. I come back down. This young man, John, gets me in the van. We start driving out of, uh, out of Ouagadougou proper. We're heading toward the town of Bingo. So we're driving to Bingo, and pretty soon it's, it's uh, buildings and skyscrapers, and then it's little towns and apartment buildings, and then it's these little sectioned-off areas with open sewers, and pretty soon we're on a dusty dirt road, and it's just small villages and yurts, and we get a little further, and pretty soon it's just trees, and pretty soon we get uh, about 45 miles outside of Ouagadougou, and it's just me and John and Bob Marley and Bush. There's nothing as far as the eye can see. And about 20 minutes later, he turns on this little road, and there's a sign about the size of a pack of cigarettes on a stick, a black sign with white lettering that says, bingo. <laughs> little... <laughs> and John's like, yeah, he turns the wheel, and I'm like, okay, that's not what I thought. I thought it was going to be bigger. So we drive down this road for a while, and we go over this beautiful train bridge and over this river, and we come down, and then we got to cross through a dry riverbed, and pretty soon we pull up, and there's 45 SUVs, all drivers, waiting for people on the production. So when that part of the show is done, they can load up the cameras and the crew and drive them to the next place. So I say, well, okay, well, at least I know I'm in the right place. John turns the car off. He gets outside, smokes a cigarette. And I don't know what to do. He doesn't speak my language. I don't speak his. I kind of look off in the distance, and I happen to just see a giant uh, a boom mic, a, a microphone on a big stick bouncing along the tree line about 200 yards away. I was like, oh, that's where they are. Okay. So I put on my backpack. I open the door. I get out. I try to thank him in French. I think I made it up. You know, I was, like, nervous, and I made up some French words. He just looked at me like he had no idea what I was talking about. I started walking towards this boom mic, and as I do, I look up, and in the sky is the largest purple-black cloud I've ever seen anything like it in my life. It was, it was a giant dust storm, and within seconds, the whole thing completely engulfs me. I'm only 15, 20 feet from the car. I get back in. John gets in. We wait for a half an hour as this thing just rocks this vehicle that we're in. Pretty soon, I get out. I start walking in towards the boom mic, and I look up, and there's another cloud, even darker and more menacing, and it starts to dump. I can see this wall of water just forming in the horizon, and it's just dumping rain, like uncontrollably dumping rain. And I turn, and John and all the SUVs just take off down this road. And they know that if that river floods, there's no way we're going to get across it. 
So they take off, and now I'm just standing in the middle of Burkina Faso in the bush with a iPad, an, a MacBook Pro, a bag of water, and a passport, and no money. I'm just kind of standing there. I see the boom mic. I start running for it. The rain's coming down on me pretty hard at this point. It's getting in my eyes. I'm, I'm, I'm losing. I don't know where I'm heading for. Pretty soon the boom mic vanishes in the distance, and I just start running. And I turn back because I thought I heard somebody as I... I come around this corner of this, around this little tree, and as I do, I run into a small little yard, essentially, of like two huts and a flat, Kong, a flat uh, mud container that catches rainwater for this family. And a little two-year-old boy runs out, and he's cleaning himself in the, sh- in the rain, and he's naked, and I run around the corner, and we run right into each other, and he screams, and I scream, and then I realize, like, I'm in this guy's living room, you know? So I take off, I run back, I get the contestants... I know, we're almost done. We're almost done. It's... I, get, I get the contestants, and their challenge at that point, right when I met them, was they had to milk a camel and then drink an entire bowl of warm camel milk. Well, the girls lost. They were the last team to cross the finish line. The reason they lost was that their camel wasn't producing any milk, so they're milking this thing and milking it. If they finally get a little bit and they spill it, they also both got sick on the challenge because on the teats of this camel were all these lice and bugs, and when they were drinking the milk, it was really difficult, you know? You don't want, you don't want that in your milk. So they lost, and I grabbed them, and they're crying, and the guy says, I'm sorry, you're the last team to cross the finish line. You've been eliminated. And I grab them, and we get in the truck. Uh, we start heading back to Ouagadougou. Well, we get to the river. The river's flooded. We got to park the car. We got to portage everything, the entire crew, up and over this train track. As we're going up and over the train track, the train comes, and you know, visions of "Stand by Me" are flashing. And I'm, I'm like, what, what, do we jump? Like, what? and then also in my mind, I'm thinking, of course, of course, the train's going to come. You know, so we run. Everyone makes it. Of course, the train slows down. It's like a little passenger train. We get off, we get back in the car, and traveling with us is a security team, this guy who was a British intelligence agent, and I said, this has been a real tough day, Bob. I'm going to need some help getting to the airport, I don't know, and he said, he was a British guy, and he said, Rose, it's going to be all right. Just get in the truck, and we'll drive to the airport, and I'll drop you off. And that's a bad British, but that's what he sounded like. As we got closer to town, I had to get out of the truck and, and stand by the back because every time we hit a, a stop sign, he said that people were going to steal all of our stuff. So I had to get in the bag and just kind of stand there, like being real cool with my shorts and my stubbly face and my hat and my whiteness in, you know, a country of no white people. And I was like, you're not very threatening. We're still going to take your shit. <laughs> get back in. As we get into town, the girls are starving. We have to get them some food. I find some goat kebabs at this place. And as we're there eating the goat kebabs, this cloud of bugs comes in from nowhere. Now, every seven years in this part of the world, there's an infestation of a very giant bug called a cane fly. And it looks like a huge mosquito. They're like this big. This big. And they, they come out of the ground... They form these huge clouds in the sky. They mate, and then the females go back into the ground, and then the males go, like, party and die. And you can see it from space. It's huge. I mean, it's this amazing cloud of life flying over the savannah or whatever it is. And so as their girls are eating, they're getting attacked by bugs. I did their interviews before we left, and both of them are deathly afraid of bugs. And so now they're losing their marbles. They're really freaking out. It's getting in their hair. It's getting in their food. As we're talking to each other, the bugs are flying into our mouths. We get back into the car. We head to the airport. We're almost to the airport. Bob says, just don't worry about it, Aaron. If the bugs fly in your mouth, just spit them out. I was like, yes. So we get to the airport. Now, the, air- <laughs> the airport is open air. As I mentioned before, it's an open air. It's kind of like a, like a school in California. You know, there's not a lot of walls, and the bugs are everywhere. Over every single piece of wall or floor or desk is covered with bugs. Now, everyone from Ouagadougou is just standing there, and the bugs are flying around them, and they're huge. Every se- once every seven years. I mean, I can understand people being cool with something when they're from that area, but that doesn't happen all the time. It's like seven, once every seven years. The girls are getting the bugs in their hair. The bugs are flying down my shirt, and they start screaming, and the customs agent looks at me, and he says, these girls are crazy. And he pulls the twins, the twin girls. I forgot to tell you they were twins. And he pulls them aside, and he says, I cannot let you go. They are crazy. 
And so I was like, hey, guys, you got to do me a favor here, okay? I'm kind of not doing so good right now. Please calm down. And they're like, you're in my hair. In the ball. I'm trying really hard not to lose it at this part. And uh, we finally get in line, and we get through. There's four or five customs and men with guns and grenades strapped to their chests. And we get all the way through, and I get them through, and they're walking down the jetway, and the last woman that checks, she kind of does a quick pat down just to see if anything's been missed on you. And she looks at me, and she's a very sweet wagon woman, and she just kind of takes a second and smiles, and I smile at her, and she says, Thank you for coming to Wagadougou. And I went to just kind of like give her a high five. And she didn't know what that was all about. And so I kind of had the weird high five thing of like. And then I said, I awkwardly said, thank you for having us. That's my 10, 10 hours in Africa. Thanks, Aaron. Aaron Roos studied digital film at the University of Montana. He now is traffic manager at the Roxy Theater in Missoula, where he lives with his wife, Haley, and their pet pig, Louie. They don't live at the Roxy. That's just where he works. Learn more about Aaron and the work he does at Instagram.com slash HeartPineWoodworks. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. MissoulaCommunityFoundation.org. Fact and Fiction, where books, authors, ideas, and readers interact. FactandFictionBooks.com. Missoula Broadcasting Company, locally owned and operating four stations, The Trail 103.3, Missoula's Quality Rock, and a part of our unique Western Montana community. Featuring local DJs who love Missoula and know their music, Jack FM 105.9, playing what they want, U104.5 FM, your at-work listening station, and ESPN 102.9, focusing on city, state, and regional sports, giving exposure and insight to teams and athletes in and around Western Montana. Learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com. Enlighten Lab Float Center. Enlighten Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at EnlightenLab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Martin McCain Woodworks and Design. Learn more about Martin and his work at Facebook.com slash Martin McCain Woodworks. Missoula Federal Credit Union. Find them at MissoulaFCU.org. Thanks to Cash for Drunkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at CashForDrunkersMusic.com. Podcast production by Mark Moss. Thank you to everyone who attends the events. Those of you who download the podcasts and most especially to the storytellers. All of you who attended the live event in March and submitted your right place, right time stories. Katie Robin Gartner and Aaron Roos. Next week, we'll have an hour-long podcast featuring all of the stories from the second act of the live Tell Us Something event this past March, where the theme was Right Place, Right Time. The next Tell Us Something event is June 13th at the Wilma. The theme is Risk. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Tell Us Something podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can stream all of the stories ever told on the Tell Us Something stage for free at tellussomething.org. Please don't forget to support Tell Us Something during Missoula Gives. Go to tellussomething.org to make your tax-deductible donation. Thanks so much.